Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. And this morning we will continue uh, the second part of what will be four parts in dealing with one unit of text. If you remember, if you were here last week, um, this section, immediately following Jesus' teaching on prayer, begins with Jesus performing a notable miracle. He casts out a mute spirit from a man who was unable to speak, heals the man, he praises God, the crowd marvels. And unlike earlier sections in Luke where he would give great attention and detail to the performing of a miracle, this is really an aside. This sets up really the rest of the chapter. Because as Jesus does this sign, we saw this last week, it creates a response in the crowd. So I'd like to begin even though we're going to be studying verses 21 to 28, starting back at verse 15. Let's just read the Word of the Lord. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test Him, kept seeking from Him a sign from heaven. But He, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. And the divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. The last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. He said, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. This is the Word of the Lord. And so, this entire section begins and is centered around resolving this vilification of Jesus. We noted that in Luke's Gospel, verse 15 and 16 really is the introduction of a general, populist-level rejection of Jesus. Up until this point, we've seen select groups, the scribes, the Pharisees, looking to catch Him, looking to trap Him, being offended. But so far, as it regards the crowds, we've had a uniform responses of wonder and amazement and praise to God. Considering, could this man be a prophet? And yet here, the crowds are turning. This is the turning point. And even though the crowds will continue to increase, as people love a spectacle, I mean, look at chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. Just because the people are turning on Jesus doesn't stop them from coming. 
We saw the beginning, the vilification of Jesus. What can you do when someone has undeniable power? You can't simply ignore Him. You can't really write off His miracles. No one ever tried to write off Jesus' miracles to chicanery. They were powerful, self-evident. I mentioned that the, probably the single strongest argument against much of what is purported to be modern-day miracles is the fact that they're not like this. They're not self-evident. They have to be defended with words. No one ever questioned Jesus' power to work miracles and signs. So then what options do you have? You, you, you have to vilify Him. You have to accuse Him of being of satanic origin of power. That was one of the issues. And last week and this week, we're still resolving that issue. I mean, this is high blasphemy against the living Christ. This is the one who is truth. And they say he's lying. This is the Holy One of God. And they accuse him of operating under the power of the dung God, the fly God. Now next week, our own Greg Rolak will be preaching to us, and he will resolve and deal with the second group, those who are seeking signs. You, you can see in verse 29, that's where it picks up. When the crowds are increasing, he began to say this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign. Linking back to verse 16. So we're still dealing with the first response. This high blasphemy against Christ that He is satanically empowered. So last week we saw Jesus refute that ridiculous accusation by showing that their accusation was irrational, it was hypocritical, it was untruthful. They, they knew. That's the whole point of referencing the finger of God. Remember linking back to, to Exodus chapter 8 when even pagan sorcerers trying to imitate Moses' miracles. They could keep up for a little while, sort of. He did the Nile. They did a jar. I guess they thought it was impressive. But eventually, they give up. They, they cannot even attempt to compete. And they tell Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. This is undeniable power in an altogether different class and tier. And Jesus, in saying that in verse 20, is telling them, you know whose power I'm operating in. You know where I come from. We talked about how people willfully suppress the truth. So He has refuted them. Now Jesus is going, to, is going to press even further. The passage starts with people wondering who Jesus is. Is He satanic or, or is He from God? Here, we're going to see Jesus is turning around. The question really is, are you for Him or against Him? It starts from people sitting in judgment on Jesus. And Jesus in this passage makes a bold declaration that really all of humanity can be divided into two categories. Those for, those who are against Him. Those who gather with Him, those who scatter. That is it. Black, white, binary. Yes, no, pass, fail. And while these people are sitting in judgment on Him, the real question we ought to be worried about is are we those who are with Him? Or are we those who are opposed to Him? Are we those who gather with Him? Or are we those who scatter? And our passage takes place in three sections. Jesus tells two stories, or gives two examples. We see the first in verse 21 through 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. So, point one, we're going to look at the strong man and the stronger man. The strong man and the stronger man. And I think it's necessary to understand this story, this parable, to read the one that follows after it. Verse 24, 
When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Notice the similarities. We've got the strong man we know from the previous context is Satan or some demon like him, and here we have an evil spirit. The strong man, in verse 21, guards his own palace, his possession. And here in verse 24, the Spirit says, I will return to my house. So my house, my palace. The reason this is important is these, these are contrasting examples. And yet the end of verse 26 makes it clear that this palace, this house, is nothing other than a person. Jesus talks about this house, but then he ends by saying, the last state of that person is worse than the first. What are we talking about here? We're talking about a palace that's guarded, a, a house that is clean. We're talking about people, individuals. We're talking about someone just like this mute man that Jesus healed and people like him. So that's how we understand the, the metaphor. So we've got a strong man, fully armed, guarding his own palace, which we now know is a person. Person under control. We talk about possession. Notice the language. His own palace. My house. What we see is that the strong man appears secure. He appears secure. After all, we've already seen in Luke's Gospel demons so well ensconced within people that even Jesus' own disciples could not remove them. Remember chapter 9, verse 38-40? to Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out and convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So we learn that the, the adversary is real. And in a very real way, he can exercise control and dominion over people. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus Again, making it clear that everyone is either a son of God or a son of Satan as he's talking to the Jews. You're doing the works of your father, he says, and your desire is to do his will. There is a strong adversary who controls and owns people, and he doesn't like to give them up easily. And a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. Which is to say, through normal means, through normal power, there's not thing that can be done. But, Jesus continues, when one's stronger, then he attacks him and overcomes him. He takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Point B, the stronger man easily conquers him. And here's the point. Jesus is that stronger man, right? Jesus is the one who again and again, with ease, rules over the demonic hordes. They obey His command. I mean, probably the most striking example, if you'll, if you'll turn back to Luke chapter 8, Jesus simply sets foot on the shore by the Decapolis. That's all He does. And a man with over a thousand demons sees Him. This legion, a term given for a military formation, this legion of over a thousand demons, more likely two thousand because of the pigs, comes and promptly surrenders and begs him for mercy. 
The stronger man is not just a little bit stronger. The stronger man is sovereign and absolutely powerful. Chapter 8, verse... Um, ooh, let's pick it up in 26. They sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out onto the land, notice how Luke emphasizes the speed with which this happens. When he had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he wore no clothes. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. If you think the conflict between the God of this world and the God of heaven is a tug of war, sometimes God you know, scores more points and sometimes Satan makes a counter move and God's going to win in the end but it's going to be a close call. You don't understand who, who, who the God we serve is. A, a legion, a military formation of demons sees Jesus touch. They don't even know what He's doing. And they just run, surrender. Please, please, please don't torment us. Jesus is the stronger man. And the point Jesus is making here is this stronger man easily defeats him. He, he rips his armor off him in which he trusted. He divides up his foes. This is total plunder, conquerage, defeat. Stronger man easily conquers him. And for those of us who are Christians, we have this promise in 1 John 4, 4, He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you're a blood-bought son or daughter of God, you have God's indwelling Holy Spirit. You have the stronger man, the stronger one inside of you. So that's the, that's the analogy. This then leads Jesus to declare an ultimatum. What Jesus has just done, in fact, is defined His ministry. He, he refuted their false accusation. I am not satanically empowered. You know it. I know it. Let me, let me tell you what I am doing. I am the stronger one who, who captures, controls, dismantles the kingdom of the enemy and his servants. And so having established his identity and his power, now the real issue is this ultimatum. It's not what you think of Jesus. It's what he thinks of you. It's, it's your relationship to him. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Notice there are no third categories. There are no third options. We talked last week, there, there's no sitting on the fence. Understand this. Today, you are either Jesus' enemy, an adversary against Him, or you're for Him. You are either one who gathers with Him or you are a scatterer. That is it. There are two types of people in the world. Jesus draws this line in the sand. And it's absolute. Point one, if you are not with Jesus, you are His adversary. You are against Him. You are opposed to Him. And we've been using military language. You're on the other team. You're part of the ranks of the enemy. This is shocking for us because we, we know plenty of people who are not Christians who we think are nice, who are not openly, evidently, warring with God. We saw last week in Romans 1, that's not the case. That we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That we, what can be known about God is evident and plain. And so whether or not you are a um, practitioner of false religion, or a Satanist, or just a nice moral person who occasionally helps out at the soup kitchen, 
If you are suppressing the truth of God around you, if you have not bowed your knee to Christ, you are His enemy. And when you stand before God, He will treat you as such. There's no third option. Well, no, I did not submit myself to the living Christ. But I was a nice... You were my enemy. You were in the other team. And God will treat you as such. If you're not with Jesus, you are His adversary. And if you do not gather with Jesus, you scatter. Which is another statement. First, relationship. Those who are not with Christ are His enemies. Second, those, no matter what good works they think they're doing, if you're not gathering with Jesus, all these good works and all these things that people would do and ministries they have are scattering ministries. Again, we can be tempted to look at other religions who can agree with us on morals and ethics, abortion issues, and and think they're doing good work. If you're not gathering with Jesus, you are scattering. You are scattering. And I think that's kind of the point of the next example. This is a radical statement that only a sovereign Lord can make. Again, who can say things like this? Either a madman or a lunatic or someone who is in fact God incarnate in the flesh. Anyone... Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. A sweeping ultimatum. A radical claim. He is the stronger man, and as such, he can make these claims. So next, we look at the return of the unclean spirit. Now, many people puzzle over the placement of this, what the purpose here is. But I think if you see the contrast of these two stories, one, a stronger man comes in, defeats, plunders, divides the spoil of the enemy in this palace that was guarded and protected. The second, we see the demon just leaves. We don't even know why the demon leaves. Maybe the demon wanted to take a a stroll in the desert places. But notice the difference at the end. In one, you've got the defeated enemy, the the goods um, divided, disarmed, the the metaphorical fangs taken out. In the last, you go from one demon to seven. So we're looking at an effectual work and an ineffectual work. We're looking at something with power, victory, looking at defeat. I think this is meant to explain Jesus' statement about gathering and scattering. I think the contrast is between the work He does And the work these Jewish exorcists do, the works that the Pharisees do, lest anyone think they're doing the same thing and working on the same team. These people are following Jesus and doing good works, and these people are are not, and they're doing good works, but we're really all doing the same thing. No, No, we're not. No, we're not. I think that's the point of the story of the return of the unclean spirit. Let's read it. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says... I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. I just want to get three three points from this. I think it's clear. It's a clear illustration of what's going on. One, it is not enough for the demon to leave the stronger one must take up residence. What does the demon not find upon his return? Anyone 
occupying the house. It's in order. It's been cleaned up. Some sort of renovation, some sort of change has occurred in this person, because we know it's a person at the end. This, this person is different than they were when the demon was last there. It's in some sort of better state. It's cleaner. It's nicer. But there's no stronger man guarding the house. Biblically, we talk about change as a matter of putting off and putting on. It is simply not enough to remove wrong thinking, wrong behavior. It's not. And unless, unless something comes to replace it, in this case, the stronger one, Christ Himself, unless Christ comes to replace it, you're just a sitting duck for, for more problems. It is not enough for the demon to leave. The stronger one must take up residence. We need the one who is greater than he was in the world within us. In, in Mark 9.25, this is the authority Jesus has. He rebuked an unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus has that type of authority. It's not going to take a day trip Take a sabbatical. Go and never return. Without that type of power or authority, it's not enough. It's not enough. Second, and this will be somewhat controversial, but I think it's the inescapable point. We're dealing with a person. We're dealing with a person who, in this metaphor, this picture, a, a demon's dwelling in them, and the demon leaves. When the demon comes back, it finds, that, finds the house swept and put in order. That's good, right? No. Because the house is empty, it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there. And here's the point of the story. The last state of that person is worse than the first. Because eight is bigger than one, right? Seven plus one, demons, is worse than one. Right? You with me? Okay, then it follows then that spiritual reform without Christ is worse than no reform. Let that sink in. Spiritual, moral, ethical reform, those are all spiritual issues, without Christ is worse than no reform at all. Right? Let, let, let the implications of that sink in. Let the tension sink in. Now, I want to make two qualifications for that statement. One, it's worse in the long term. Jesus' emphasis is the last state. To be sure, there was a period of time where the house had no demon and it was cleaner than it had previously been. And that's, that's having a clean house is good. Who knows how long this demon went through the wilderness and dry places. And to, for that time, no demon, cleaner house, good. And, and people who, who shape up their life, sober up, get off drugs quit cheating on their spouses, they will experience some blessing, some enjoyment, some benefit in the short term. But, but if the stronger one does not come and take place, if this is not done, if this is done apart from Christ, the last state is worse than the first. Now, it, again, I want to be clear. When a person um, quits drinking, their children get blessed. Their wife gets blessed. That's all good. Jesus is focusing on the last state of that person. For that person, in the end, it's worse. Why? How could Jesus make such a statement? 
We've already seen in Luke's Gospel that it was precisely the moral people. It was precisely the people who cleaned up their acts, who rejected Jesus, and it was the people who were the notorious sinners who, aware of their need, received Him. Listen, listen to this statement from John 7. <coughs> As Jesus is defending John the Baptist, when all the people heard this, verse 29-30, through the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. And Jesus has identified the Pharisees. He says, it's sick people who need a doctor. I've come to call sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. Some of the hardest people to save are those who think they're good. You're not going to want a cure if, if, you, if you don't see the disease, are you? And when people moralize and straighten up in their own strength or in their own power, what, what do they conclude? They're better than they were. They're doing better. Those are some of the hardest people to reach with the Gospel. This is one of the reasons why, as a, as a pastor, I, I do very little. I, I, got, I can't counsel unbelievers. I, mean, I can meet with them and try to evangelize them. But think about it. According to Ephesians chapter 2, how do we define people who are outside of Christ? Having no hope and without God in the world. So you are without hope, but you want help with your marriage. And you're without hope and you want to help with your, with your problems. And, and I say, i got hope for you. i got Jesus. Here's a Savior. And here's a Gospel. And here's the promises. Yeah, I'm not interested in that. But can, can you help my marriage? You're without hope. And if I say... Well, even though you don't want God's Son, and even though you don't want His Gospel, here's something that can help. What am I offering? I'm offering hope. I'm offering a counterfeit, an alternative. No. If, if, if you are not with Christ, you're God's enemy. Spiritual reform without Christ is worse than no reform. That is the unmistakable point of this passage. And I think the reason he makes that clear is this. The people looking at the Pharisees and the people looking at the Sadducees see very moral people. Very moral people. Ethical people. These are not notorious drunks, prostitutes, sinners, tax collectors. And Jesus is making it clear the work they're doing, if it's being done apart from Him, they're not gathering with Him, as much as it may look like they're doing the same thing, it's scattering. It is scattering. Point C then. To promote Christless reform is to scatter. It is to scatter. All attempts to moralize people, all attempts to, to do spiritual reform and work in people without pointing them to Christ, may, it may in the short term produce some benefits. The house is clean for a little while. Yay. It's scattering work. It's a radical statement. Radical statement. Because there are many people who are engaged in many ways that they're trying to offer counsel, therapy, things like that, to try to help people with spiritual issues. If they're not pointing them to the stronger man, Jesus defines their work, their ministry is scattering. When we look to other religions and, and their attempts to try to enact ethical and moral reform, we think, well, we're all doing the same stuff. No, we're not. Those who are not gathering with Jesus are scattering. That's the point of this story. 
to promote Christless reform is to scatter. Listen to Jesus' scathing indictment of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. Proselyte's a convert to Judaism. So they're going across sea and land into Roman and Greek to pagan territory. And they're converting pagans, idolaters, people who worship at temples and, and engage in the, the prostitution and all of the sin and all of the public debauchery that goes with that. We know how the Romans and the Greeks worshiped their gods. They convert them to Judaism and they, they give up the idolatry and they, they give up the drunken festivals and they give up the immorality and they give up the prostitution and they give up the adultery. That's good, right? What does Jesus say? You travel over um, across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Harsh. It's unmistakable. To engage, to promote Christless form is to scatter in the long term. It is to scatter. Jesus makes that point clear. We need to be clear on that point as well. Recognizing that, that it can offer temporary and immediate benefits. And to the degree that there's less victims, I rejoice. If my unbelieving neighbor becomes a better husband, I'm, I'm happy for his wife. I'm happy for his kids. The final state of his house has not improved. The final state of that person has not improved. You are going to be hard-pressed to find a more moral, ethical group of people, the Jews of Jesus' day. Compare them, say, to our nation, our people. They're going to look a whole lot better. And yet, in the very first verse after this that Greg is going to start with next week, what does Jesus pronounce upon that entire people group? When the crowds are increasing, he began to say, verse 29, this generation is an evil generation. But Jesus, there's some moral. Jesus, their house is so swept up and clean. Yeah, but they don't want me in. They don't want to receive me. They don't want me to take up residence. Their latter end will be worse. Christless reform scatters. And to promote it is to scatter. Well, then Luke interrupts this narrative unexpectedly, right? I mean, we're letting this sink in. And as he was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, the breasts at which you nursed. And he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. What's going on here? Jesus has just laid down the law. He's just drawn a line in the sand and indicated there are people on one side who are with him, and there were those who are his enemies, his adversaries, his opponents. There are those who are doing real work in gathering with him. And there are those who scatter. By the way, that reference to gathering links all the way back to John the Baptist's description of Jesus in Luke 3. 
Remember John said, I, I baptize you with water, verse 16, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Jesus gathering, gathering his wheat. He's gathering his flock. He's gathering his people. What, is, what does Jesus do to those who don't gather? The chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Either gathering with Jesus or you're scattering. And in that context, having laid down this law, making it clear, the real issue is where do you stand with me? A woman, presumably, to, to voice her support of Jesus. Notice Jesus treats her gently. And this woman's at least sort of on the right track. She's, a, she's publicly praising Jesus' mother, which is a way of praising Him. Because in the Jewish notion, your, your children either honor or dishonor the parents. So we read in the Proverbs about how a foolish son shames his mother. Or Proverbs um, chapter 23, verses 24 to 25, the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice. He who fathers a wise son will be glad. She's voicing her support of Jesus. Jesus, I'm with you, Jesus. With you. On your team, I don't want to be on the other team. I don't want to be opposed to you. She, she lifts up praise to Mary. And, and here, I think what Luke is doing is showing us, point three, what it means to be with Jesus. I, I hope and trust that, that you want to be with Jesus, not against Jesus. What does that mean? Because in Jesus' correction of this woman, we're going to learn what it means to be with Jesus, to be on His team. So, it starts, the woman blesses Jesus' mother. The woman blesses Jesus' mother. Now, um, we've already read in Luke, remember, if you turn back to chapter 1, turn all the way back in Luke to chapter 1. We were here a little over a year ago. Okay. okay. Look, I did not do a 12-part series in the Lord's Prayer like some preachers I know. Just saying. Okay. Um, we turn, turn to Luke chapter 1. The angel appears to Mary, right? Verse 28. He came and said to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Remember, we studied Mary is not a source of grace and favor. She is a recipient of grace and favor. And then when she goes to visit Elizabeth, the cousin, Elizabeth blesses Mary. Look at verse 45. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And, and even as Mary begins her praise to God, what does she say in verse 48? For he looks on the humble and state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And here's a woman calling Mary blessed, just as she predicted. So there is something right going on here. I think that's why Jesus doesn't rebuke her. It's incomplete. And especially if this woman's praise of Mary is coming from this notion that somehow being genetically 
familiarly close to Jesus brings one blessing, then that is wrong to the degree that that's what's going on. Notice she praises Mary for the wrong reasons. Elizabeth tells us why Mary is blessed. Verse 45, right? Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. You see, Mary received a word from the Lord. And unlike Zechariah, who doubted and said, can I, can I have a sign? She believed. And Elizabeth says, you're blessed because you believed. You heard God's word. You believed God's word. You've been faithful to God's word. But Jesus is going to correct you right here with. So Mary is blessed. And all generations will call her blessed. We just got to make sure we bless Mary for the right reasons. Mary is faithful. Mary heard God's word and believed and received it. The Lord received, I mean, Mary received God's grace. Blessing isn't because she's the mother of God, quote unquote. Blessing because she believed God's word. That's the blessing. She praises Mary for the wrong reasons. And again, point, point two here, blessedness is not derived from your family. Turn over to Luke 3. John the Baptist has to correct some of the Jews who have this mistake. It's common enough, you know, if my parents are Christian, then I'm a Christian. My uncle is a pastor. Whatever. It, it shows up in various forms and means. And, and in Luke chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist says this, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Don't think that just because you've got a genetic link to Abraham, you've got some sort of step up with God. Blessedness is not derived from your family. Blessedness is not derived from your family. What's striking to me is as Mary shows up in the New Testament, she is shown to be a blessed woman and a woman of faith, but the New Testament again and again and again goes out of its way, as far as I can tell, to make it clear that there is no blessedness extended to Mary due to her genetic connection to Jesus. She has no leg up just because she gave birth to him. Turn to chapter 8. Why include something like this? It almost, it almost makes me think God wants to guard us from undue adoration of Mary. Chapter 8, verse 20 to 21. You'll see the theme come out again here of how Jesus corrects her. Verse 20 and 21. His mother and his brothers came to him. They could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. He answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. I don't recognize closeness I don't recognize family because of genetics, lineage. My family and how I recognize them are those people who hear God's Word and do it. Let's go back to chapter 11. How, how does Jesus correct this woman? It's gentle, right? I mean, she's, she's trying to support Him. There's people who are blaspheming Him. This woman's trying to say something nice. It's incomplete. Potentially misleading. And so Jesus gently corrects her. Gently corrects her. 
She said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. This, this has been Luke's consistent theme. The blessedness comes from hearing and keeping God's Word. Blessed are those who hear God's Word and keep it. Turn, turn back to Luke 8. Get anything as we've been going through Luke. Get this. Praise is not enough. It's good. Those who are genuinely converted will praise God. You can praise God all day and yet not keep His Word. Not receive His Word. It will benefit you nothing. What does it mean to be with Jesus? This correction helps us understand what it means to be with Him. Remember He told the parable of the sower. And he tells about how the seed fell on different soils. What was the defining characteristic of the good soil? Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, there are those who, hearing the word, there's the first piece, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. What's the distinction? There are others, remember, they receive the word, they receive it with joy. You can imagine them praising. Receiving the Word. Keeping the Word. Bearing fruit from the Word. What does it mean to be with Jesus? It means to receive God's Word. It means to keep God's Word. It means to bear the fruit of God's Word. That's what it means to be with Jesus. Praise is not enough. It's certainly not definitive. James chapter 1 warns this. Be doers of the Word and not hearers only. Deceiving yourselves. There's a real possibility for self-deception because we hear the word and we sit under the preaching of the word and we sing songs of praise we must be okay again and again the defining mark of those who are born again the defining mark of those who who have the new life within them is not just that they hear the word but how they respond to god's word we're not, we're not saved by doing things we evidence our family status by our response to God's Word. If anyone's a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Blessed rather are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. Now on a shift from Word of God, now to Word of Jesus. Make this even more personal. What does it mean to be with Jesus? Those who hear and keep Christ's word. Because, of course, Christ is the incarnate word of God. Are those who are truly with him. Turn, turn back to Luke 6. This is no new teaching in Luke's gospel, right? If you remember our time in the Sermon on the Plain, how does Jesus bring it to a close? He starts, remember, by that narrow, there's two paths. We're back to that binary notion. There's the blessed, and there's those who have woes. And then he lays out his teaching, what he calls his disciples to do, to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek, to forgive. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, 
I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. When a flood arose, the stream could not break against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house in the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of the house was great. What does it mean to be with Jesus? What does it mean to be on his team, gathering with him? It means you hear Christ's word. You keep Christ's word. And what's the first word? Unless you think this, oh, yeah, we got to go do stuff. What, what, what does Jesus say in John 6? What are the works of God? To believe on Jesus. The first bit is believing Jesus when he says who he is, that he's the Messiah. Believing Jesus when he says that he's the one who is coming to, to seek and save the lost, to die on a cross for our sins who delivered over to the hands of sinful men, raised on the third day. That, that, that's what it means to believe Jesus' Word. And then, as we understand who He is, okay, He says He's God, He says He's Lord, He says He's the stronger one, then I probably better obey Him, huh? That, that's what it means to be with Jesus. Is that, does that define where you are at? Are you one who has heard Christ's claims, heard who He says He is, heard who He says He is and what He has done for you? Have you believed that and received that? Have you received the stronger one inside of you? Do you then treat Him as Lord and, and keep His Word or endeavor to in your life? You're blessed. You're with Him. And one way or another, you are gathering with Him. That is not where you are at. Whatever else is true of you, know this, you are God's enemy. You are scattering. And when you face God, He will treat you as such. God's offer is, is He's gathering His flock, right? He's gathering His people. And even this morning, He would gather those who would hear His Word, respond to it in faith, receive His Word, turn from their sin, turn to Christ and trusting in Him. Keeping His Word. It begins with these people questioning who He is, ascribing wrong motives and power sources to Him. It ends with Jesus sitting in judgment on them. The real issue is how you respond to Christ's Word. How you respond to Christ. That's how you identify what team you're on. Not how loud you sing on Sunday morning. How much money you give. How much you... That's the defining character. Who's my mother and my brother? And my son? He who hears the Word of God and keeps it. Blessed is your mother. No, rather, blessed is the one who hears the Word of God and keeps it. Here we have in front of us the living incarnate Word of God. Hear Him. Receive Him. Keep Him. If you have any questions, we'll have a discussion time in my ABF after this. Talk to an elder Talk to one of the leaders here. We'd be happy to talk to you if, if you have any questions about what you've heard. Nothing is more important than this. Resolving where you stand with the Lord and where He stands with you. Let's pray. Lord God, we would be with Your Son. Lord, we sang earlier, Show us Christ. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we've learned reading through your, your word, reading through Luke. And spiritual sight and spiritual understanding is a gift from you. Grant that gift in our hearts, Lord. Speak life and light to blind hearts. Show us Christ. Show us his beauty, his majesty, his authority, 
His wonder, His power. That we might hear His Word, believe His Word, receive Him, keep His Word. Lord, do not let us engage in the folly of trying to shape up our lives without having the stronger one, Your Son, indwelling us, living within us, defending us. Oh Lord, don't, don't, don't give us that faith. Give us Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.